I just saw so, so clearly how all these Web3 frameworks and the tech would be applied across the media and entertainment industry pretty holistically. Yes, there's a lot of value here. This is a valuable tool. You can't build a company like Amazon or pretty much any of the business models that are out there today without having the internet. Founder, market fit, people that, that get the market and can navigate it competently. We have something where we enjoy building things as well. And we understand the path. It's undeniable that when you look at either the, the human body uh, or nature in, in all of its systems, there's so much that we can learn. Yeah, so Andrew, thank you so much for coming on to the show. I've been looking forward to this one. Same, man. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. For everyone out there who's listening who doesn't know your whole background, how about you talk a little bit about how you went on this journey and ended up doing what you're doing now with uh, Techstars. Yeah, for sure. It's a, it's a winding journey. So I'm from the Northeast, originally born in Philly, grew up in South Jersey. I was always back and forth in Philly. My parents worked in the city and um, ended up doing school at Rutgers uh, in New Brunswick, worked in New York for a bit, got married, moved back to Philly, um, now down in, in Miami. But um, career-wise, I spent a long time in the music industry. Grew up in church, playing a lot of music, gigging around a lot. Got into jazz uh, while in high school. I played piano um, and sing and lots of live directing and arranging, a little bit of studio work. And I thought that music was going to be what I did for the rest of my life. And then uh, college hit and life just kind of took a different different curve, man. And um, very serendipitously found myself in a startup. Don't come from business at all. My family, not in business to you know any degree. My dad did a little bit of marketing and, and sales uh, back in the day, but uh, true business and entrepreneurship was very far from anything that I ever knew. And one summer, my wife, who was my girlfriend at the time, uh, didn't want me to get a motorcycle. Uh, I'm a bit of an adrenaline junkie. And, you know, went back and forth on it for months and ultimately for her sake decided not to get it. But I still wanted something that had the feel of a motorcycle and the safety of a car. And you see a number of things out uh, in the market like that today, but at the time there really wasn't anything. And so I tried to build it and wrangled together a bunch of engineers, mechanical systems, a few auto heads, a few designers and generalists. And we set out to build this hybrid electric motorcycle car thing. And we failed miserably. Um, it was a wonderful experience though. And really just like dramatically changed the trajectory of my, my whole career. After that, I ended up with Google for a bit. We were spinning up a pilot program um, to help bridge the digital divide across the country. They wanted this, this particular initiative that was normally uh, associated with Google Fiber um, to sort of stand on its own outside of Fiber's footprint. So they tapped about 15 of us um, to go figure it out. And we spent a year putting together a, a playbook to do that. Um, we were out of the New York office, but based in New Brunswick, uh, Rutgers on, on the campus there. And um, it was an awesome ride, uh, a lot of program management, uh, marketing partnerships, and really wanted to get deeper into to tech. I, I knew that that was you know, long-term what I wanted to do and space I wanted to be in. And uh, just bounced around for a, for a bit. Um, I was with eMarketer uh, as they were getting acquired by Axel Springer um, and integrated with Business Insider doing product stuff there. That was with a, an agency that was building in the sort of chatbot and digital assistant market when that was taken off. This is like late 2016, early 2017 time. And after that, ended up working with a really fascinating company called uh, Landmark Ventures in New York. 
really could have been three separate business units, um, but they worked together incredibly well as, as a holistic company. There was an investment bank, sort of a strategic events group, and this business development and advisory practice that would work with large enterprises and, and startups. And I was the second hire in this new industrial IoT group, working with some of the top IoT companies in the world, doing things like predictive maintenance, digital twins, safe SCADA security, and a bunch of this heavy legacy environments, manufacturing, oil and gas, energy, transportation, agriculture. And we would work with these awesome um, high growth startups and help them with business development and partnerships. And so I was interfacing a lot with CIOs and chief digital officers, VPs of innovation and operations at these large Fortune 500, Global 2000 companies, um, helping to facilitate deals um, and also some advisory for those large, large enterprises. I was there for a bit. I was living in South Jersey at the time and commuting to Manhattan and man, it was a nightmare. <laughs> not sustainable on, on the bad days, like up at five o'clock back at 11. It was just, it was unsustainable. I was planning for my wedding at the time. Man, that sounds like a grind. Oh, you have no idea. <laughs> no idea. If I had to do it all over again, I would probably do it the exact same way. Lots of great experience, wonderful people that I got the chance to, to work with and um, ended up joining Comcast uh, right after that. They were, they had incubated a company focused in IoT, but more in the networking stack, sort of low powered wide area network infrastructure. Uh, LoRaWAN specifically was a relatively new communications protocol at the time. And they were doubling down on that. And I came in to just wear a lot of hats and help grow the business um, in, in various ways initially sort of ecosystem development and partnering with a lot of startups uh, across so many industries, real estate, agriculture, food service, retail, the industrial sector, you know, food service, healthcare. We were playing in, in so many places to really try to find that sense of product market fit. And so it was sort of like a, in, in some instances, like a biz ops um, type of role where you sort of have like these mini consulting engagements and try to figure out, you know, if stuff would work in these various environments, both from a market standpoint and a product standpoint. Worked a lot in sort of business development and partnerships and, and sales, both at the startup level and, you know, working with uh, and connecting with large enterprises in various industries and um, ultimately a bit of growth strategy in figuring out sort of what was next for, for the company. Running behind the scenes, though, I, I knew I wanted to build again. You know, I had gotten bit years ago with the bug and entrepreneurship was just uh, something I couldn't shake, but I didn't know exactly what to build. Um, none of the ideas that I had really, you know, when you're deciding to do a company, it's something that has to like really grip you. Otherwise, like you, you lack the proper fuel for the journey. It's tough in so many ways. And, you know, entrepreneurship has gotten glamorized a lot over probably the past decade, more or less, but it's a, it's a full body workout that hits you physically, mentally, emotionally, relationally, financially. And a lot of people don't realize that. It's not for the faint of heart. That's for sure. No. You know, people will say it's, it's for a specific kind of person and more of like an exclusive kind of like way. I, I use it like it's a particular type of person because it's actually kind of masochistic in a way. It's like, <laughs> This stuff is not, it takes a particular kind of crazy to do this. And yeah, it's just not, it's not for the faint of heart, man. I used to try to get people to get on board with it. Family, friends, like go start businesses, go do stuff. And I don't do that 
anymore because it's just it's tough man and if it's not something that you're naturally inclined to it's different if you have context on it and you need context and information and then want to do it but if like it's just not in you you don't have that sort of drive like i i do not push people uh anymore because i've just experienced it man it's it, it hits you i knew i wanted to do something while at comcast wasn't sure what and you know nothing truly stuck as far as some of the ideas i was kicking the tires on and decided to try to do consulting and you know started engaging with a handful of startups and start to started to see how valuable what I had to offer was, you know, it, it was almost like a per, finding my personal product market fit. You start hearing feedback and it's like, oh, I'm actually kind of good at this. And you just kind of keep doing more of it and more of it. And I, I left the first business unit, this IoT group, and ended up joining another group inside of Comcast. Um, they were doing like advanced customer experience analytics. And they were actually spinning out of Comcast into their own separate entity. And so I was there for a little bit and then decided to leave. So I ended up closing clients in, in a couple different areas on the startup side. Um, and on the fun side, uh, I was working with this emerging Media and entertainment fund. A guy was, uh, he had taken some of his, his assets. It was, it was really interesting things. Invested with the Smith family, you know, Will and, and Jada, um, and a few different film projects. We had access to their new holding company, Westbrook, as they were getting off the ground. The guys who owned the Batman IP, the Usland family, um, he had invested in a, in a new production studio. So he was taking all these assets, some media and entertainment tech as well. He was taking all these assets, rolling them up into a holding company and trying to scale up a lot of the, um, the investing activity. So I came in to help one, look at deals, evaluate partnerships um, and fundraise. And so, you know, we're spending a lot of time talking with family offices, high net worth folks and PE shops and getting some good good traction and interest. This is end of 20, 2019, going into 2020, pandemic hit you know, and production across the world came to a, a screeching halt like many industries did and ended up leaving that company. And it was figuring out what to do next and came across Techstars. And I, um, I had heard of Techstars because the first business unit I was at with Comcast, at the same time, we had this sort of sister business unit that was also spun up from the strategic development arm we were all a part of called Lift Labs, which was Comcast's new accelerator in partnership with Techstars. And so I heard about them, I knew at a high level what they did. And, uh, you know, this particular summer, summer of 2020, I saw that they were hiring. It was a part-time thing. I was trying to figure out what to do next. I'm like, you know, something to hold me over. We'll see what happens with it. And uh, a few weeks in, you know, got the gig and immediately got put on some pilot programs to run and oversee, working with all the programs around the world on sourcing and diligence and working closely with the managing director down in Austin to put together the class for the 2021 cohort and just fell in love with Techstars. Awesome people, so competent and sharp um, in, in so many different ways, industry-wise, functionally, but also just great people and a heart for supporting and backing founders. The whole ethos that they embody of the you know, give first mentality, it just maps so a lot of my own personal ethos. And I was very blessed and fortunate to have gotten in. And behind the scenes, I was thinking about what to do company-wise. And, you know, over the past, you know, couple of years at that point, I've been kicking the tires on one of these ideas. Like I mentioned earlier, I, I came from music and knew the space very well and encountered a lot of issues personally in my own like discovery process, trying to find music that I enjoyed and pretty deep technically from a theory standpoint. So like, but also my, my ears, like I know what I want to find, but there wasn't, and still isn't to this day, the tools and place 
for someone like me to be able to go out and find the music that I wanted to find. And a lot of the sort of personal research and sort of thinking and strategizing and talking with people out in the market finally sort of landed on something that compelled me enough, something that had a gap in the market and had a lot of technical risk around it. One of the through lines uh, in my career in so many different ways is just very technical products. Uh, I've been drawn to them and I enjoy them a lot for what reason. I'm sure there's one I haven't been able to come up with why, but I, I like them. And um, this had some very nuanced, the, the particular field is called music information retrieval. And it's the idea of using you know machine learning AI to extract and understand the particular features inside of music. And it was sort of the backbone for this idea to stand up, you know, a solution that would help people to find music more reliably, more accurately, more easily. And I started working on that behind the scenes while I was at Techstars. And towards the end of my, my time there, getting into the end of 2020, 2020? Yeah, 2020. I ended up coming in as an EIR in the Austin cohort um, to help the companies that I had been working with and talking to for a while through the duration of the program, but also beginning to stand up this new company. I was called Village Music and um, had been putting together a team with people far smarter than me. I was, in hindsight, um, just feel so blessed and fortunate that they believed in what, you know, I was doing, what we were doing. And, um, you know, we were, we were building, um, we had started fundraising and, so quickly, things just kind of crashed and burned for a, a bunch of different reasons um, from a team standpoint, a product standpoint, uh, even to some extent, a go to market standpoint. I would have done things very differently in, in hindsight, but that's the nature of the game. And, you know, was winding that down. Uh, I was also beginning to move down here with my wife to uh, first Miami. And there was a company that we were looking to partner with. They were and are still doing, they're sort of positioning themselves now. It's like a, a tiny desk meets Airbnb. So instead of people renting out their apartment for people to live in, they use them as venues. And the company then brings together emerging undiscovered artists and up to 40, 50 paying customers for intimate live concerts called Musicasa. And when my company, when Village, uh, had to wind it down, it just kind of naturally made sense um, to start working with these folks and came in to head up products and was trying to figure out was sort of an inflection point of, do I go back into operating? Do I begin investing? And so I was working, uh, you know, with this, this company it was also, I had joined John Gannon's going VC program. Wanted to just kind of beef up some of my, my chops from an investment standpoint and also just get, get context to figure out something I wanted to dive deeper into and ended up putting together a thesis around web three. I've been watching the space since probably 2017. I remember exactly where I was in New York hearing about Ethereum and the ICO craze and all of just this noise. And I'm like, what, what is happening? What, what is this stuff? That's I'm a crazy like, time. Oh, dude, so much happening, even to this day, just a lot of, a lot of stuff. It's been a lot of time just sort of like sifting through the weeds to see like, what, what is this actually? And what I found was some very compelling technology. I hadn't quite come across very practical use cases yet, but something very, very strongly resonated with technology and just sort of watched the space. And just kind of fast forward through all of my the experiences, uh, whether at Comcast and seeing a company like Helium and various, you know, blockchain supply, blockchain supply chain plays, I began to see like, 
okay, here's some more interesting applications, things that that this this technology and these frameworks could be used for. Got some of the folks over at IPFS, uh, Protocol Labs, building IPFS and, and Filecoin. And just more and more started to understand the technology. I'm the type of person that if I don't understand things kind of from the bottom up, it's hard for me to, to truly play in and understand the space. And just dug in and really enjoyed what I what I found and what I saw. And so after things wound down with my company, I just saw so, so clearly how all these Web3 frameworks and the tech would be applied across the media and, ter- media and entertainment industry pretty holistically, whether social, art, music, video-based content, gaming, and realized it was a, a space I wanted to invest in. Um, so I ended up leaving the, the startup at the end of the year, this is last year now, and was trying to figure out, okay, I want to invest, definitely want to invest in Web3 and spent some time figuring out exactly how to do that. Ended up working with a few companies, not in Web3 necessarily. One company is kind of playing adjacently in the space. Um, so I sit on a few advisory boards and ended up working with a, a family office, putting together a, a micro fund in Web3, focused a bit more on community. And then uh, saw Techstars was spinning up more programs all across the, the world, really, um, on blockchain and Web3 and saw this particular program up in Boston with Algorand that they were spinning up and reached back out to a few folks and ended up coming and help spearhead the program, stand it up. So that's what I'm doing these days. Actually in the thick of talking with, with companies, making some decisions by by Thanksgiving, 12 early stage companies will be investing in and supporting and uh, very excited about what's happening in the industry. So it's a wild story, man. I mean, I, I'm glad that, that you really ran through all that. So everyone out there listening can really see like you bring in so many perspectives and I can see why, you know, you're like the perfect person to work at a company like Techstars. I mean, I feel like Techstars is one of those brand name, like when people think of accelerators or top programs, they'll think of like YC and Techstars. At least that's the way that I've always looked at it. And you've kind of had your foot in or your hand in like every single bucket uh, from the entrepreneur side and starting up companies to the venture side, to the mentorship side. I'm curious into like hearing about your thesis around Web3, right? You talked a little bit about how you first heard about Ethereum and started hearing about the ICO craze back in 2017. I feel like that's when a lot of people uh, started hearing about it more often, started looking into it. And at least for me personally, when I first heard about it and for the first time really started digging in, I realized, wow, this is a new type of technology, just like you had mentioned. And I approached it a lot from the mining side when I really started trying to learn about things like bottom up, learning about protocols and seeing how do you think that this is going to affect the future? I was pulled into it and went down all these different rabbit holes and then eventually got to a point where I really started focusing a lot on Bitcoin, Mm -hmm. but simultaneously I'm so curious about what's happening in web three and thinking, okay, well, I got my thesis on Bitcoin. What is going on in this whole world of web three and, and how are we going to solve real world problems with it? Um, and that's kind of where I'm at today with it. I, but I know that there are other people like yourself and other people who are deep in this, who have very robust thinking around where we're at today, where we're going in the future and, what types of projects are going to succeed and, you know, how do communities play into all that? So I guess all that leading up to just me kind of asking you is like, how do you think about this stuff and how are you approaching it? Like with what you're doing at Techstars today? Yeah, it's, it's such a big question because it's such a big space. Uh, It's uh, it is rightly called a, a rabbit hole. 
And when you jump down into it, you begin to fall and explore and go through this sort of hill and valley-like waning and ebbing and flowing of being excited and being skeptical, feeling like you're making so much progress then feeling like you're a noob. And it's like, you're falling down this rabbit hole and you look up and it's like this infinite, uh, to some degree, space of people who you see just beginning to, to trickle in. And it's like, dear God in heaven, you've got so much to, to see and, and dig into and learn. And then you look below you and it's like this infinite chasm of, gosh, I'm so early and there are people that have been here so much longer. And it's just sort of a weird dichotomy. I'm not a crypto native person at all. I, I don't consider myself that. I know enough to be dangerous and understand concepts and principles and the things that I don't know, um, learn relatively quickly, but it's a, it's a steep learning curve for sure. The technology itself is complex. The, the frameworks are decently new and the combination of those two, as you apply them in various industries, things get very complicated very, very quickly. Whether you're looking at, you know, just the pureness of the technology and, and blockchain infrastructure and, and how all this stuff works. When you look at it from a, a DeFi and financial services standpoint and how all this stuff is transforming that broader market, I don't come from financial services. And so there's a learning curve both to understand finance and, and all of its intricacies and then understand how DeFi is transforming all of these things. And it's just moving so quickly. It's like you, you take a sprint and you feel like you've come such a long way and objectively you have, but because things are continuing to evolve, it's like, sheesh, there's, a, there's still a lot to go. And you can kind of take that really across different areas, infrastructure and tooling, DeFi, the broader media and entertainment space, the creator economy. There's a whole bag of worms around DAOs and communities and, and their tooling and governance structures and tokenomics. It, it's a fascinating space. And that's just looking at things from sort of a, a blockchain crypto standpoint. Then you've got this whole sort of immersive side of things with AR, VR, this very nebulous metaverse term that's getting thrown around a lot, but they all intersect very fascinatingly. And uh, I'm excited about it. I think that it's not going anywhere at all. You kind of get into a place where because you're you're so deep into it, because I'm so deep into folks that are, you know, in so deep in it, I, I think very easily you can forget that it's still so early because of how much people are talking about it, because of how much activity there is, how much money is flowing through it. But then when you look at sort of this market compared to other markets, it's like, oh, wow, there's actually not a whole lot happening. When you look at the number of developers that are building blockchain solutions, not a lot of them. You look at actual users, not a lot of us here. There's still so much room to go. And so it's it's promising, but there's also a lot of work to be done because there's, there's a promise of Web3 and decentralization and, and all these various topics, but the, the full manifestation of those things I think we are quite far away from. Um, and so you have, you have people that are sort of pushing the boundaries of that, almost two classes, right? And it bifurcates on, on one end, people that are like pushing the boundaries of decentralization and these, these fascinating frameworks to see how far we can go with it. And with you know, the shock in the market over the past you know six months, give or take, I think it's causing people to sort of pull back a little bit. I'm sure you're hearing about it too, this whole notion of web 2.5, where it's like, okay, yes, 
some things can be centralized or decentralized rather. It, it makes sense to explore some of that, but some of these things actually make more sense to be centralized. And so it's this, this balance of how centralized versus decentralized across that spectrum, but also in different places. You can look at that inside of your infrastructure. You can look at that inside of your, um, your governance structure. Um, so you've got these different pockets of, um, of how all these frameworks can be applied. And there's a lot of experimentation to be done. And you've got a lot of skeptics out there. And rightly so. I, I think we need them um, sort of poke holes in things. But at the same time, you need people, not necessarily the maxis. I mean, they're out there, they're loving it, enjoying it. But I think we need more so optimists that and, and people that are willing to truly innovate and not be afraid to, to fail and the combination of the two to have um, productive conversations on what things are new and can be pushed and where the gaps are and things that actually may not make the most sense. Because at the end of the day, these are technologies and frameworks and there is no inherent value in those things. They should be additive to, to business fundamentals. And I think over the past two years or so, a lot of that got lost. And people were just throwing out a lot of bad crypto projects, a lot of bad NFT projects, and just a lot of noise, a lot of bad business being done. And I'm glad for this, this shakeout um, that's happened. It's been like a forest fire of sorts, burning away the shrub. And I think this next bull run that we're going to see in you know, God knows how long it's going to take, maybe a year, two years, who knows, but it's, it's definitely going to come. And I think inside of, of that market, we're going to see a whole lot of very strong, compelling, true value solving real business issues and being at this this early stage looking at you know pre-product pre-revenue companies through to you know seed stage companies even on the, a bit of the later side you know raising three four or five million dollars and everything in between you get sort of a front seat to see the full spectrum of things like yeah that just shouldn't even be happening to oh wow this is a fascinating business opportunity using this technology to do things that you couldn't do otherwise. So I'm, I'm very bullish on the space, but I think we're still trying to figure out exactly where to, to play, both as a, you know investors, but um, even more so as, as entrepreneurs building new solutions. Yeah, it's interesting. The way I, I've been thinking about it is very similar. You know, at the end, I've, it goes back to what you said, where at the end of the day, these are tools and what is the real business need and value that's being applied and yeah i i actually just recently started hearing about this term web 2.5 so i'm probably a li little bit behind uh, some of the people who've been uh really deep into it where hey some some of this stuff is needed and helpful and some of it isn't as needed going off that that thread and this is an idea that i've been playing with I, i'll try and articulate it here but just like how before the internet right the internet was a tool once you had the internet you had the dot-com boom where you've had a lot of companies just getting money thrown at them because they had a website, right? And then all of a sudden you realize, wait, yes, there's a lot of value here. This is a valuable tool. You can't build a company like Amazon or pretty much any of the business models that are out there today without having the internet. Similar here, it's, I guess, the next evolution, Web 3.0, where you have this new, and it's so fascinating too, like how you can incentivize communities and build incentives to get greater participation and build new types of business models. And I'm not sure which one of those business models are going to succeed, which teams are going to build those, but it is fascinating to think about. And I, I think that there's going to be a lot of value created there. When you're trying to assess that, how do you assess which companies, like when you're tying it back to business fundamentals, right? Is it more of a, I guess it, it, if you had a magic a crystal ball and you could tell what was going to happen in the future, it'd be a lot easier, but 
I mean, Howard, you, you know, very like a lot of the leading types of firms like Techstars or YC or uh, any of the other investors that you're speaking with, how are they truly evaluating something when it's so early stage when, you know, rather than just throwing money at, you know, a company that has a dot com or like has a website, how are you discerning between these projects to tie back to real fundamentals? You know, at the end of the day, you back founders, you back the the jockey um, and you bet on people that have enough insight and to a large degree, humility to approach the market in a judicious and open-minded way, recognizing that it's, it, there are two parts to it. Folks that have this, uh, this term that we use a lot, founder market fit, and it's at the end of the day, this unique and compelling insight into the market and the dynamics that are happening in it to identify problems, real problems, pain points for folks, businesses, consumers and being having the the sensibilities to tie a, a solution back to those things in a compelling and unique way. And there's this balance in this. It's an art more than science to such a large degree, but being able to determine the quality of a founder based on a lot of these, these signals and these proxies. And one of the things that's so massive for me that is, it's like a beautiful dinner um, when I see it or when I hear it, founders that are able to clearly and effectively communicate insight that they're getting from the market. It's it's one thing to, to do market research and to do some strategy work to come up and, and try to understand, okay, it seems like there's a gap in the market here and or some compelling value proposition to unleash. And here's a solution to, to bring that about. That's fine in a, in a solid place to start. And is likely, particularly for the folks that have um, have been in the market, are someone that experiences that pain, either as a business person or as a consumer. Like it's a it's a great starting point to begin to direct the the compass. But at the end of the day, like at some point, you have to start engaging with the market and the people who you're trying to serve to understand. Okay, am am I right? Am I wrong? You're you're looking to validate or invalidate these hypotheses and assumptions you've got about the business and the best founders that I've come in contact with, they do such an incredible job and probably a better job than anybody of doing that type, type of discovery work. And so it's a point of conversation whenever I talk with founders. It's like, I, I see what you've done on paper, typically see your deck, maybe a one pager, maybe some bullets. It's like, cool. Seems like an interesting idea. I get it conceptually. One of the first things that I'm looking for, what are you hearing from the market? And it, a lot of it comes down to traction and traction comes in, in many different ways. I think ostensibly people think that it's all about revenue and revenue is, is good. Revenue is fine. And it can be a great signal that you are delivering things uh, that are addressing you know, particular felt needs in the market. Not all revenue is created equal. So you kind of got to dig in a bit to understand you know, some of the things under the hood. But you know, traction could be revenue, could be users, could be LOIs, could be MOUs partnerships, but at the earliest stages and, and at, at its core, it's a data-driven understanding that people want what you have built. And so when evaluating these, these projects, I try to understand, like, are you one building a company uh, and do you have a solution that is addressing a problem, unleashing compelling value in the market? And how do you know that you're doing this? And there's, there are two ends of the spectrum. 
They're the folks that are like, I think it's like this based on what we see out in the market and what we're hearing and what we're feeling. We think it's this and we're building this solution to try to address that. And they've got all these hypotheses and assumptions and great lines and product you know, roadmap and features and go to market strategies and financial modeling. It's like, cool, but there's not really a whole lot of substance there. On the other side of the spectrum, you tend to hear things like, We've talked to these particular types of people consistently, and they have told us this. They are going about doing whatever they're doing in their lives as, as this particular persona. And we keep hearing this consistent pain point or this thing that they wish they could do, this thing that doesn't exist. And in that gap, we've decided to build a solution. Other times, I was just talking to a founder today, and I told it you know, to his face, like, what you just said is one of the most beautiful things I hear when talking to founders. You're doing one thing as a company, you're building solutions, and perhaps as you're building, you start getting pulled in another direction from your consumers or from the market. And then because of that pull, you start to then pivot and go into that. And it's one of the things that I see not infrequently, and I love to hear because it, it means that you're, you have both the sensibilities, the ear and the eye to act, to have your business act as like a sale for the market. And you put that thing up and the market begins to blow and you're, you have the humility and the, the insight to allow the market to, to push you in the right direction. And you just sort of flow with it. And hopefully you've got the, the, and this is where the team comes into place. You need the right people to be able to execute on that, but sort of Wrapping up back to your, your question, the thing that, that I look for so often, and I think many of my colleagues do, strong sense of product market, founder market fit, people that, that get the market and can navigate it competently and, and have it in sort of an explorer's mind, an ear and an eye to, to, to see and, and listen. And with that sort of disposition, a, an obsession with being close to the people that you're trying to serve to understand what you're actually supposed to be building, because they'll tell you. That that was incredible. I, I'm sure that at all the founders out there who just heard what you just mentioned in that uh, in that last answer are going to be so grateful that they listened to this episode. I'm curious, uh, I was just thinking about it, is uh, so you've gone through the, the founder path and started companies and this uh, this this motorcycle car type machine. When you started designing that, how did that? I, I know that you, you didn't pursue it like fully, or like you ended up. Did the did the vehicle end up coming to market? Actually, we built nothing. Okay. <laughs> we spent so much time in design and strategy. We had no idea what we didn't know, and who knew it was so hard to build a yeah. car. Oh, it sounds, but, um, I mean, the fact that you, you went for that, that's like the hardest company you could possibly go and try to start. Um, sounds like on the surface. Yeah. So yeah. when you, when you were designing it and everything, like, I guess, what were some of the biggest lessons that you learned when you were going through the startup journey um, as a builder, right? Because that's something that I think is very valuable. I think we talked about it earlier. We both agree. I was the exact same way, by the way, where I would always just tell people, oh, go start something. Like I'm similar to you in many ways. I would say an adrenaline junkie, like always just going and it was pulled to entrepreneurship, right? And so I would go and I would tell people, especially early on, like, oh, just go do something for it. It's like, oh, you want to do it? Go do it and find a way and like find a way to monetize it. But then after going through and seeing how difficult it is and taking a lot of licks, you realize, okay, well, it's the perfect thing for some people. Like for someone like me, for example, I just know that, or someone like you, we have something where we enjoy building things as well. And we understand the path versus um, most people, that's not their thing. They'd be much better in some other role that, for example, like 
I would definitely not thrive in, right? And so mm -hmm. I, I think from that question, like for all the builders out there, people trying to start a company, what are some insights or things that you've learned when going through that journey, trying to build something from scratch or trying to build or bootstrap a company? Yeah, focus on sales before product. And that's a high level way of saying, spend less time thinking about features and cool product ideas and spend, it's really an extension of what, what I was saying before. And it's probably the biggest lesson that any entrepreneur can learn, especially first time founders, because that's typically the mistake. Spend a lot of time in strategy and product and ideas and not enough time talking with people and figuring out like what to truly build that's going to solve needs. And it sounds so simple, but you'd be surprised. It's, it's this leaky bucket of sorts. And you may or may not have this sort of approach. You may or may not hear it by way of advice. If you do start there, you know, by, by some miracle or do have advisors or friends or family that you know, sort of push this idea of being customer centric and obsessive. It's something that you constantly have to, it's a, it's a muscle that you have to work um, because it's so easy, especially for people who have entrepreneurial drive and are very ideas driven and big dreams. Like it's, it's easy to stay up in the air. It's easy to stay inside of Notion or Google Doc typing out ideas and how all this stuff is going to work and it's just going to flow and people are going to come. It's going to be awesome. You're going to get the bill million dollar exit and Google's going to acquire you. It's like, that's cool. You know, it, make, it makes you feel nice and feels like you're, you're making progress. But in reality, you're like a hamster on a wheel. And at some point you got to stop, get off the wheel and just start talking to people to validate some of the things that you have. And once you hit, and you don't do that for long, you don't want to spend a ton of time, you know, weeks upon months doing this type of deep discovery work. You need enough to have some sense of direction, try to get something built. There are a number of tools out there, low code, no code for those that aren't technical, for those that are technical, there's not much of an excuse. And then there's, you know, the notion of trying to find folks if you're non-technical and that's a whole conversation unto itself, but you got to get something built. The MVP is, it's a, a critical thing for founders and something that I don't think gets prioritized enough amongst people who are trying to start companies, particularly tech companies, but that customer discovery process and work, getting something built in the hands of users to get that feedback and just iterating to the point where you have some sense of founder market or product market fit. That is the framework. And there's a lot that goes you know, into it in between, but like it's a decently simple recipe that's actually pretty hard to execute on. It takes a lot of diligence and a lot of focus, but yeah, that that's my advice and something that I, I preach to often to founders. I was just on a call with someone last night, one of the companies I sit on their advisory board and I probably had the same conversation with them. I can't count how many times over the past two years. And, um, you know, they're building products, they're um, raising, they are building their team, they're engaging with customers, but there's one of the things we were talking about so so deeply last night was getting back to just the, the core critical things that, that matter for your audience. They were at a place where they're, they're out fundraising, 
And they're starting to hear from, from investors like, that's a cool idea. It's, it's fine, but they're not getting really gripped and compelled by it. And he's like, yeah, man, I, I don't know what's what's going on. And as he's starting to tell me what he's pitching to them, I'm like, oh, I, I get it. There's no meat here. There's no substance. You're talking at sort of a, a wishy-washy high level. And that's a result of not getting down to um, the things that actually matter with customers or the things that only come from talking with customers and digging down into the, the whys and those root causes of what you're trying to accomplish what those needs are, where the pain points are, and ways to very clearly tie some kind of quantitative metric to it. Qualitative is, you know, a second best, but you, you need something that can be measured by way of this, this pain or these gaps so that you can very clearly have a problem or solution that, that addresses it in a, in, a, in a clear way. And so you need some kind of numerical system to quantify this, this pain in some way. And so I spend a lot of time talking to founders about um, about doing that. Even folks that are you know are building, have raised money, product out in market, testing out with users. Um, it's something that that constantly has to get refreshed, and it's something I've been telling founders for a decent amount of time. But even as a founder, putting that hat back on, you kind of need people to reinforce that with with you because the trap is so deceptive. But uh, yeah, man, some, yeah. some thoughts there. Oh, 100%. I mean, it, I can also see it's exactly what you said. It feels good to kind of have all these ideas and and think, oh, going to go and do this and get this exit and everything's just going to go according to plan. But getting back to that root cause and just like talking to customers, figuring out, hey, are we on point here? Or is there something that has to change? And if you're just planning in a Google Doc for, you know, like many, many months and not really executing or doing anything out in the market, then it, it's going to be tough. You're, you're going to have to get pretty lucky to hit the bullseye right on nose the first time you go out there. Incredible, incredible advice. So I got one last question for you. This has been an unbelievably amazing discussion here. I, I can see that the time has just flown and it's gotten dark since the time we started recording this. But before I ask the last question, for everyone out there who's listening right now and wants to stay up to date with what you're doing or go learn about uh, tech stars, follow you on social media, uh, where can they connect with you? Yeah, I'm uh, everywhere at AC, the VC, um, on Twitter and LinkedIn. Spend a lot of time on uh, LinkedIn and increasing more on Twitter, but you can uh, follow on and connect on both those platforms. Perfect. Yeah, I, I'm the same way. It's hard to stay on top of all the different platforms and I stick to LinkedIn and Twitter as well. Awesome, man. Well, the last question is, what is one belief that you hold to be true that the majority of people would disagree with you? Yeah, tough question. <laughs> um, I don't know if a lot of people would disagree with me necessarily, but I don't think a lot of people are seeing this and, and talking about it. I'm a huge believer in increasingly getting uh, conviction around it, this growing and emerging field of biomimicry, I think. And this is the, the space, this, this approach, it's essentially um, getting inspiration from nature on how to, how to build things. Um, that's a very coarse, I suppose, way of, of explaining it. But sort of irrespective of where you sit on the sort of uh, evolution or, or creation side of the, the spectrum, it's undeniable that when you look at either the, the human body um, or nature in, in all of its systems and, and you know, various areas, there are these 
perfected systems and, and designs out there. And there's so much that we can learn um, that I think also presents a very compelling competitive advantage for companies. One, because it takes a keen eye and a very particular eye to identify those things. And to some degree, even uh, a greater degree of expertise to extract those principles and embed them in business models, in hardware, in software. Um, and so I think there is there is potential um, for a lot of investing, but you know, main thing, a lot of building to be done um, for entrepreneurs looking at biomimetic solutions. That's fascinating. What, what was it called again? I, I hadn't ever heard of this before. Biomimicry. Biomimicry. Awesome. Well, hey, if they didn't learn something before that answer, they definitely learned something else now. <laughs> I think so. That was awesome. Yeah, thank you so much for coming on, man. This has been a lot of fun. Yeah, well, my pleasure. With, um, with your cohort out there at Techstars. And yeah, we'll have to do it again sometime. Looking forward to it. Thanks, man.